Welcome to Interrevolutionary Radio. Today, I am your host, Helen Hillix, with our co-host, James Maynard, and I our am guest, here. Beth Green. And yes, thank you for joining us. Um, yes, are I'd you... like to share, share today's topic, if I may. Absolutely. Let's call off the war on one another. Let's talk with Beth Green. Beth Green claims that our society is waging war against us. The White House proposed tax cuts are supposed to help the majority of Americans, yet more than two-thirds of the benefits would go to the top 1% of income earners. Income keeps floating to the top. In 1965, CEOs earned 20 times the amount earned by typical workers in their industries. Now they earn nearly 300 times more. The minimum wage isn't keeping up. From 1973 to 2013, productivity rose 74% but earnings rose only 9%. Collective bargaining has been gutted. Economic and trade policies have allowed business to exploit the less powerful. Our air, water, and soil are being raped. We're stressed and insecure. The question isn't whether or not our well-being is being eroded. The question is why we put up with it. Our guest says it's because we are distracted by fighting for our gender, race, religion, party, culture, or geographic region instead of fighting for a future that brings economic, physical, and social well-being to us all. Can we change that? Stay tuned. Thank you so much, James. And I'm so excited to have Beth on the show today. Uh, As some of you may know, we're winding down in a revolutionary radio live. We will still have four fabulous years plus, four plus fabulous years of content available, and we will let you know that on our website, theinnerrevolution.org. But for today, let's focus on what we've got going on right now, and I want to welcome you, Beth, so warmly, and thank you so much for being on this show. Well, you're very welcome. I'm very happy to be here. You realize, of course, that everything that I haven't had a chance to say or that I need to repeat, I've got to have to say in the next hour. So That's going to be a lot. <laughs> that, <laughs> but I'm going to try to restrain myself and stay focused on whatever topic it is. Well, as we know, Beth is always guided intuitively, so... There may be some additional information added that wasn't on that introduction, so be prepared, folks. Well, and not only that, of course, the Republicans are have made some changes in the tax bill since uh, we prepared that, uh, you know, e-card. So there, but the the basic idea is still is still the same. But they're trying to cover over the tax cut to the rich by giving more to us and just increasing the national debt so that we can pay them to have more money. Right, and leave that an unpayable debt to our children. Exactly. What a wonderful idea. Right, exactly. In addition to the debt they already get from college and everything else, you know, uh, there there's soon going to be a kindergarten fee. <laughs> After all, why should kindergarten be free? I don't think so. I mean, if college isn't free, why should kindergarten? I'm kidding. Okay. I know you're kidding. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So... I love your question. It's not really the question of whether it's happening. Yeah. It's why in the world are we putting up with it? It, it is absolutely, unbelievably insane. You know, it really is. I, I would agree with you 100% on that. It is, but we are, we are socialized. You know, I, I still, you know my favorite topic is high heels, right? Yes. So can you tell me why women still wear high heel shoes? Well, they think they look good. Right. But see, that's yeah. insane. 
I know it's insane. <laughs> it makes you know, them look taller and thinner. And of course, we all know you can't be too thin. No, and you can, you, I guess you can't be too tall either. I guess not. Spoken as a five-foot person shrinking every minute. Exactly. <laughs> so it's, uh, I mean, it'll, it, it just goes to show you, I mean, the reason that I love that example is that it is, it is such a useless self-brutalization. And, you know, one of the things that I'm talking about is the war on us. So I've, you know, really, even since uh, designing this uh, program, you know, with uh, working with Helen on this, you know, I've been going out and talking more about how society brutalizes us and how we brutalize ourselves, one another, and the earth. And it's just, it's just really more of the same. It's like, why do we put up with it? I think we are so inured. We are so accustomed, so habituated to a level of brutality that we accept that as normal. And it really isn't. Uh, it is neither normal nor is it healthy no, and certainly it is not necessary. And and it seems like more and more people are waking up to this reality, but it doesn't seem to be translating into policy changes. No, you're right. And I think that, you know, uh, we're, we're really under siege now. Uh, the, the, some of the um, people who have been appointed to lifetime court appointments, for example, have clearly come out as anti-gay. Now, what on earth is the justification for this government to be anti-gay? You don't want to be gay? Don't be gay! <laughs> but wh- why, why should that be public policy? And it's things like that. It's, for instance, there was this uh, young girl who uh, wanted an abortion, this uh, young immigrant, the, the uh, undocumented immigrant detainee, and she wanted an abortion. But the government decided that they would prefer that she not have one. Now, I, I sit and I listen to this. Okay, you don't like abortions. I understand that. Don't have one. But especially if you're a man, it's not really necessary. <laughs> but but why, where do we come off as a society to decide that she shouldn't have an abortion, especially when it's still legal in this country. The government decides that they would have that preference. You see, it's like whether it's oh, whether it's reducing access to birth control, which is also being promoted by this government through uh, making health care, um, you know, not require these healthcare companies to offer birth control. Well, obviously, we much prefer to have women have rampant unwanted pregnancies for which they can't have abortions, I guess that's really logical so that all women can stay home and have babies. I mean, what, I mean, where's the logic in that? Where and the government, the, of course, wants to support those babies so badly uh, and provide uh, them a free education. Exactly. And then after all, our president has been saying, now I'm really taking a serious look at uh, welfare. So we can, you know, we we can have welfare, but we can give tax cuts to the rich. Now, I have said over and over and over and over and over that everybody in this society suffers. Everyone is brutalized, including the rich, and I will still stand on that. But what we're doing is so crazy, so painful, so ignorant. 
what we are doing to the planet is unreal. We are the only, quote, civilized, uncivilized society that actually won't admit that there's climate change as we have billions and billions of dollars of damage from climate change. See, it's not only a, law, a, a, a war on us, it's a war on logic. And, um, you know, and people are completely, some people have completely bought into this. Again, I can have a lot of understanding for people who say, I don't uh, agree with abortion. Um, I, I would prefer that people didn't get pregnant so that they wouldn't have to have abortion. So then why cut back on birth control? You know, and then uh, you still can't make that decision for more moralistic decision for people when that is not yet the law of the land. It just takes away people's freedom. And there is an upset. Well, I mean, you can see it now. We just had another terrorist attack, right, with somebody who said, Allah Akbar, you know. So he, of course, is a terrorist. We're going to solve that problem by stopping Muslims from entering the country. Now, what are they going to do about all the white men who are going around with terrorist attacks like in Las Vegas? I think the idea is that what we should do is we should not allow any Muslims into the country and we should expel all the white men. <laughs> and, and the Same logic. The, the, the guy who did the New York attack was radicalized in the States, not yes. somewhere else. Oh, yes. Yeah. So that really is all going to be helpful. So it just feels like sometimes I feel like somebody is squeezing my throat, you know, just squeezing the life out of us. And, you know, it's it's more than that. They're they're deregulating all kinds of industries uh, so that um, people can work overtime without getting paid for overtime, that we can do more drilling and uh, pollute and rape the earth more. It's like it never ends. So you say, well, I agree with the abortion thing, but do you also agree uh, that people should be forced to work overtime without getting paid. Do you also agree that uh, that young people should be burdened with astronomical debt in order to get an education that they need in order to participate in the economy? I mean, do we agree with all of it? Can't you see the connection between this, uh, all of these ways in which we're just kind of squeezing people so that they have fewer and fewer rights while simultaneously giving more rights to business, industry, and corporations, which we're also seeing in the lovely tax code. You know, it, it, what you're saying reminds me of the, of the summary again, in that we are being distracted from all of these realities by a constant focus on, oh, he's going to keep Muslims out, or yes. w- whatever the constant dis- the distraction du jour, or, or we, we can't let North Korea bully us. We've got to stand up to those evil people. Right. And right. go ahead. No, I get, we just have to bully ourselves. Now, please continue. Well, it's amazing, that I, and I've got, a touch of ADD myself, I must say, but you know the 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 ability to the the distractibility of our populace is just shocking. The the inability to focus on what is really going on and the willingness of the populace to be distracted by these other random uh, issues is is shock. It really just dismays me so. 
Yes, I totally agree with that because even these things are a distraction because what's really core is that the system itself is brutal. Even if we weren't turning back some of the regulations on industry, we're turning back banking regulations, which came in because of the death, the crash of a, you know of a couple of years ago. Um, yeah, the crash of 2008. Yeah, that all of these things are happening, uh, which also even distract us from the fact that something is fundamentally wrong with the socioeconomic system that we have. And so we're constantly under attack, we're constantly on our toes, we're constantly freaking out, and we're constantly in the middle of nonsensical uh uh, arguments and when I say nonsensical, I'd like to clarify that. But like, did Trump really say that? And what is Trump thinking? And what is he? What is he really saying? What does this mean? And what does that mean? And what is he going to do about this? And, and and you know, did he really say this? And oh, how could they say that about a for you know a a gold star family? It's like oh, if you're in the military, you should be getting different treatment from the guy who's lying dead in the street. Uh, because he's been pummeled by the police. I mean, that's different, you know. And we, and then we have these symbols of patriotism, and uh, and who's more indignant than whom, and who can demonstrate that who's more oppressed than whom, and all of this really does distract us. It all distracts us from from when we were children. We did not have Donald Trump for president, and we still had a system that sucked, that just sucked the life out of people. And that suck the earth dry. We have always had that. Trump is a great mobilizer, but he's also the detractor, the distractor in chief. You know, for some reason, this reminds me of the workshop that we're going to have in a couple of weeks that you'll be leading, you know, about creativity. And the reason it reminds me of that, it may seem an unlikely segue, but the reason it reminds me is that we do not think creatively. We are not taught to think creatively. And when, when you define that, you know, you're talking about being guided by an internal imperative, uh, you know, which means our intuition and so forth, which you'll talk about more, I'm sure. But can you talk about the, why we're not raised to be more creative? And, and isn't that relative to this conversation about why we just go along with this? Oh, you're absolutely right. We are programmed species. You know, it's like we are computers. We are programmed. And people who are really smart know how to manipulate us. They know how to play off our emotional programming. Most of us feel very, very insecure. You see, we have a social and economic system that breeds insecurity. You know that if you get sick, you may or may not even be able to get disability. Disability is very inadequate. Uh, if you get old, which you will unless you die first, uh, unless you have a whole a bunch of money in the bank, you will probably have very inadequate income to provide for yourself. I mean, that's why there are so many seniors in poverty. Uh, that, that somebody younger, smarter, better looking, more connected, whatever, comes along in your company and you can be out on your, you know, ASS. And so uh, what, we're, what we have is a situation where we have incredible economic insecurity and that leads us to having uh, also social insecurity. 
because we have to be able to pr- to provide for ourselves. And if you're a man or a, you know a, a woman who feels that she has to bring in money, this makes you feel insecure, especially men feel insecure about their value in society when they aren't earning, quote, enough money uh, to raise a family. And who, who does? Um, and so it, it seems like when you look at it, there is this underlying fear and insecurity. In addition to that, so many of us were raised in families where there was a lot of brutality and so we were brutalized as children and we don't have that inner peace and relaxation that we should have had. Some of us were raised in, uh, in war zones. Uh, some of us were raised in dangerous neighborhoods. Uh, some of us were just raised in dangerous households that were violent either emotionally or physically. Uh, we were raised in neighborhoods, some of which were violent in schools where there's bullying. So when you think about, and then there's life, you know, illness and all those things that you just can't help, right? Storms. And so you, you, you take this child and you traumatize them from the beginning of life. Uh, they're, going, they're yelled at by their parents or some uh, are actually indulged by their parents until they discover that the, the rest of the world isn't like that. <laughs> But then they they brutalize other children very often. Uh, sometimes your parents are great, but your brother or sister is kicking you under the table. And so there's so much brutality towards children. Uh, and there's another form of brutality against children today, which is different, which is about how are you going to make a living uh, when you grow up? Who's going to pay for your college education? And uh, and how are you going to succeed? And the child is like seven years old, and they're already worrying about their test scores. We have a brutal educational system that tries to, to put all these children in these little boxes so that they can pass these standardized tests. And before you know it, the child is stressed, scared, worried, anxious, and sometimes numb. And but nobody is ever saying to that child, there's something wrong with the world. It's not you. It's like, this is the way it is, and you're supposed to fit in. So I'm sure you've seen this too, Helen, being oh a counselor. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. As both, both of us are counselors, you know, is what happens to kids today is the amount of stress they're under that they have to perform. I mean, they have to perform in school. They have to perform in athletics. They have to perform in music. They have to perform in performing. They, you know, they have to perform on tests. They have to make their parents feel good or they have parents who are neglectful. They have to compensate for a parent who's drunk or on drugs or absent or so on. And so what happens to people when they're so, or, oh, let me add something else before we go on, is like supposing you're also part of a minority group and you're you're seeing brutality uh, in the society by the police, uh, if by the white nationalists or whatever against your particular ethnic group and that causes fear and fear and fear and then your own ethnic group is you know churning up the anger as well and the fear because somebody is going to be gaining some kind of political advantage by keeping those emotions high and so you feel so unsafe and women are so unsafe and look at what's happening today two things simultaneously that you know more and more 
more of these powerful men are being exposed as sexual predators. And at the same time, uh, our government is being making it harder for women to defend themselves against uh, sexual predation, another insane thing that's happening. And then all those boys who have sexual feelings that they don't know what to do with, and they do, they're afraid they're going to be caught doing something wrong and they're going to be labeled. Being, or you're gay and you have to hide that because... You know, it may not be acceptable to the people around you, or you may lose your job, or you're transgender, or blah, 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 blah. You know, how stressed, traumatized are we from the gate? And so is it surprising that people who are there to exploit our vulnerability and our fear can stir up that fear and turn us against one another? We have never as a whole, as a whole society, and I doubt that there's many places in the world where it's any different, had nurturance, love, compassion, support from the beginning of life. So how, it, we don't expect it. Right, it you know, just shuts down our brain. It you does. Know, we can't come up with creative alternatives to the way we are taught things are because we can't think because we're scared and stressed and That's shut right. down all the time or we're on drugs. You know, it's one thing you haven't mentioned yet. Oh, is, God, yes. You know, are yeah. the drugs. And I had a, one client recently, a 14-year-old boy who his he's been tagging with paint, you know, and smoking pot. And his mother was totally distraught, you know, two immigrant parents working hard, hard, hard. Their parents are working hard, hard, hard. And this kid wants to grow up and be a, he wants to work at a surf shop and live in a minivan. Uh-huh. And that's his answer to, yeah. to, to our society. Yes. And I told him in the session, I said, it's not your fault. Yeah. You know, it's not your fault. It's our society is upside down. Yes. I, I have a question for Beth. Uh, Beth, can we look to any of the European models? Uh, for example, I know in Finland, they have one of the highest rated educational systems in the world, and yet there's no homework. Uh, the kids have nutritious lunches. Uh, there's a lot of uh, kids helping kids, uh, creating more of a sense of safety. Uh, the, a lot of these European countries have universal health care. Uh, the Scandinavian countries have a social, economic uh, social safety net. Uh, what do you think about those things as, as possible steps toward uh, greater safety and Well, there's well-being? no question, James, that those are possible steps. But what we're adre- addressing now mm-hmm. is not whether or not there are ways to fix the problem. That what we're addressing is why we don't even recognize it as a problem. Or even try. Or even try, change. because we are so focused on fighting each other because we, you know, it is very easy when you have, when you're in a, uh, a town where all the industry has left and there's nobody left by but you know the old folks and there's no hope and more and more of the opportunities are moving into the urban areas even out of suburbia that's less the rural areas and so you know you're told that the problem is x or y and this is why you're feeling so desperate and what i'm trying to get to right now is we are already desperate we are already afraid. We grow up in a society where we are treated badly. And like Helen says, we can't even think outside the box. You know, there are gang members who could have been great scientists, 
but their energies were channeled into use, using their intelligence in order to make money for themselves or to survive on the street. I mean, how many geniuses are roaming around in our prisons? You know, uh, but it's this when you have people who are already traumatized and they can't think, they're easily stirred up against each other because we are never allowed to question the system. I, I remember, you know, in the old days, my old days, like in the 40s and 50s, you couldn't utter the word socialism. Oh, if, if anybody accused you of being a communist, you could have gone to jail. And uh, people were afraid of thinking about anything but capitalism as the norm. And, uh, you know, the other thing that I noticed that relates to this is when we talk about our country and uh, making it greater again or whatever, what they're talking about is whom, for whom, making it great again, for whom. There is an assumption that this is a white country and a white male country, and it isn't. It's not a white country and it's not a white male country. And even white men are exploited and abused and brutalized. And I've seen that my whole life from the time I was a child and I saw my father going to work and I saw what happened to him. I was appalled. You know, one of the main reasons that I turned against capitalism as a child is because I saw how my father was being treated, you know, as having no power. He had no power. He was a a salesman, and he went from store to store with samples. And there was no union for him. You know, he was self-employed, and um, he was treated badly by the buyers because they didn't have any sense of power. So if you take all these traumatized people, all of whom feel threatened for one reason or another, that the white, the people in white America who have taken on this kind of nationalistic, uh, you know, worldview are feeling like they've lost something that they had. Well, they did have some advantages maybe over the black people, but so what? <laughs> you know, what did they really have? And, um, you know, this, this reality of how desperately difficult it is for people at all levels, including at the executive level where these people are brutalized into working extraordinary hours and stressful jobs to satisfy, you know, the CEO, which who has to satisfy the board, who has to satisfy the stockholders who are nobody, are faceless people who have no relationship with anybody who's working for them. So when you see this and you understand that people are so stressed and so stretched and so desperate that they're easily revved up to fight any scapegoat and so turn the republicans against the democrats and the democrats against the republicans the whites against the blacks and the blacks against the whites and the muslims and so on and just keep going and you just keep going and keeping us going around in circles and we haven't been trained to think about the whole, to think about the system, to question. I mean, some people are actually questioning why do we have this gigantically high incarceration rate? What are we doing? You know, what are we doing? What is all the talent we're squandering and that we are brutalizing our men by putting them into these prisons to be prison guards? And everyone must have a gun. I, I saw a picture on Facebook yesterday of a former client of mine in a wedding party, Beth, where there are like four bridesmaids, four groomsmen, the bride and the groom, and every one of them had a gun in the wedding pictures. You're kidding. 
I am not kidding. Rifles, assault rifles, pistols, everybody had a gun in the wedding pictures. Well, uh, you know what? I, I, I really get it. You know, the people who are for gun control don't always recognize the fear that the people who are against gun control are fearing. Are Absolutely. Feeling. I get it, too. It, but it's just shocking. It is shocking. It's 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 despairing, and we know, like you were saying, James, about that there are countries whose educational system or social safety network is better. There's a lot of nations that are not as violent as ours. I mean, there are nations that are more violent, where there's constant war. Imagine how traumatized those people are. But it's like you grow up. You know how it is. I remember, you know, going to the store because I never had children of my own. But I've observed other families. You know, you go into the store and you see a family where the dad talks a certain way, walks a certain way, and has a certain attitude. And you see that nine-year-old son of his talking the same way, walking the same way, and exhibiting the same attitude. I'm sure you've seen it, too. And the same thing is true with the girls. You know, they're modeling themselves after their stressed out, crazed, crazed parents. They're feeling the the anxiety themselves. They want to fit. They want to belong somewhere. And you are, are they going to walk in and say, you know, Father, I've decided that the way you talk really belies a certain violent consciousness that I don't want to exemplify. I don't think so. You know? And I know it comes from feelings of insecurity and yes. wanting to belong. <laughs> exactly. And that is so it, because without a social safety net, we have to conform to have safety. We feel we need to, and there is some reality to it. If you are really willing to stand up and break from your family, who's going to take care of you? The cool thing about so many gay people, for example, is that they have fought so hard to unify the gay community so that they can support and help each other if and when they're abandoned by society or uh, drummed out of the family, which is happening less, I believe, but certainly is still happening. Uh, But, you know, you can understand that. But then we become, that becomes the new we. It's like, okay, we gay people. I I remember when I first joined a 12-step program for my alcoholism, which was, you know, I quit drinking in 1980. So, um, but I did have that experience. And the people in that program stuck to others, to each other, and with the attitude that we are somehow different. Alcoholics are different. Alcoholics are ego-based. Alcoholics are assholes. Alcoholics are, you know, scared. Alcoholics are like this or that. I'm sure you heard it too, Helen, in your years of counseling. But it makes it look like other people aren't too. (laughs) You know, are you the only addict? The only addicts on the planet are alcoholics? What about the drug addicts, the food addicts, the sex addicts, the... You know, uh, we can go on. The self-mutilization, mutilation addicts. um, Gamblers. Gambling. Reading, gardening. (laughs) Yeah, hiding, escaping, yelling at your husband, anger. Work. And so it's great when people band together, but when they band together with the realization that I am still just like everybody else and let's make that connection, then you begin to develop a movement 
where people are realizing that we all have these problems. So if the people who are white nationalists and who feel threatened are going to fight for their rights, well, what is it? What did our, was it our Declaration of Independence that we were endowed with certain inalienable rights, uh, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness? Well, that we all need life, and we all need liberty, and we all need the pursuit of happiness, and we all need to have the right to vote, and we all need some clean air and water and so on. Like It's like we need a new declaration of needs about what we actually need, and then you realize if you're a white nationalist or a black nationalist, you need the same thing, and we could get together and we could start fighting for what we need rather than fighting (coughs) with each other. The other day I was thinking about democracy and how much it's like the uh, gladiator, uh, what do you call those things? Those Gladiator rings? Rings, yeah. Where, you know, you go into the ring and you fight other gladiators to win whatever it is you think you're winning. And that's what democracy is. Everybody gets together, sends their representative to, uh, to Congress in order to get a bigger piece of the pie for themselves. It's crazy. It is crazy. Instead of using democracy as a way of communicating to one another, these are the needs. Hey, guys, these are the needs over here. And hey, guys, here are the resources over there. Let's start matching our needs and our resources and start building a society that works for everybody. That is the only thing that will stop this insanity. That is the only thing that will end racism, sexism, and discrimination is when people feel unscared of one another and are getting our needs met so we're not so stressed and And so that the parents aren't so angry and anxious crazy to start with and haven't people looked at history ever to see (laughs) to see that when things get so upside down as they are now there will be a revolution it's just a matter of time well you know, they can look at that there will be a revolution or you can see that there will be fascism, which is, you know, a strong man will rise, right? Oh, absolutely. Order to everything. Right. All kinds of horrible things will happen, but eventually there will be a revolution. And we're just trying to (laughs) suggest exactly in a conscious way so that it's not out of out of complete desperation and insanity that it's out of conscious focus on what humanity actually needs and what the earth actually needs let's have a revolution that has focus to it and and that really does care about everybody and knows what we're doing which uh, that i haven't seen too much of no i agree with you helen and i think that's a very important point because we are seeing rumblings of revolution, but some of those rumblings have been really vicious, negative. People are so angry, they're ready to fight back, but what are they doing? They're bashing each other on the head. Uh, I, you know, I think that the issue of, for instance, of the, con- uh, the Confederate statues and uh, monuments is very instructive because... I, of course, I agree that the Confederate monuments represent uh, slavery. I mean, you can't, you cannot separate that out, no matter what John Kelly, chief, chief of staff, says. You know, you can't separate out 
the uh, the Civil War from the issue of slavery, even though there were many other issues involved. And who's going to exonerate the North? I mean, the North made a lot of its money on the slave trade, even though they didn't make the money so much on the utilizations of slave as labor power, but they made money on the slave trade. And that built up a lot of our cities. But then, okay, that went out of style. And so I'm, I'm, not, I'm not saying that there are saints on one side and sinners on the other, but who in God's name is going to defend that the people have a right to have slaves? So the Confederate monument conversation has been, or the Robert E. Lee uh, conversation, has been distorted by saying, well, these were, you know, true good guys who were really just doing their thing, and you can't judge them by today's standards. Well, I would bet you that if John Kelly were put in chains, he would say, I don't like this, and not wait, wait, say, well, 100 years from now, somebody will say that putting middle-aged white men in chains is bad. He would say it's bad right then and there. You know, there are things that we don't need uh, the verdict of history to tell us are inhumane, like slavery or the pollution of the earth, which is all self-destructive. But what happens is we get into these endless conversations and demonstrations about monuments. Well, and And fighting, even in that situation, taking sides rather than saying, you know, rather than saying, what do we need and how can we fight for that together? Exactly. So what black people need is not fewer monuments. They need less discrimination. They need more income. They need better education, safer neighborhoods, uh, less violence, more love, more support, more education, all the things that all the rest of us need. Exactly. So it's, yeah, there is the distraction again. So Exactly. Just another meaningless, well, it's not meaningless, but it's compared to the overall and the overarching issues of saving humanity and the earth, (laughs) they they pale in comparison, but we spend so much of our time and energy focusing on them. Right, because this way we can make so-and-so look bad. They go, oh, that becomes my major drive in life is to make Trump look bad. I don't exactly. want to make him look bad. I want to make us be well and 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 that people would feel well and safe enough that they wouldn't need some guy wandering around uh, you know claiming that he's going to fix everything on their behalf, giving them a false sense of power. <sighs> wow. I mean, that's so true, the the idea that some guy is going to come up with these simplistic ways that he's going to fix everything. Yeah. It's really difficult to believe that people buy into that, but... They but do. They do. If you look at my Facebook page any day of the week, <laughs> you will see that there are people, I mean, their answers to everything are... You know, read the scriptures, and this the end of the world is coming anyway. Or, um, uh, you know, uh, there's some expletive against me. Or, uh, climate science is not definitive yet. Uh, we we don't know that there's climate change. We don't know that there's chi- climate change, but all industry is preparing for it, and we're already paying for it. But hey, there is an elephant in the living room. But we're not quite sure that we should call it climate change. I mean, we have an EPA that won't allow us to talk about climate change anymore. 
Uh, well, so it's it's, not it's so funny. Yeah, yeah, we haven't we have this animal in the living room that is huge and has trunks for legs and a trunk off of its head and is you know eliminating all over our home. Let's argue about whether it's called an elephant or yes. not. Yes. Or how it got there. Yes. Whether whether it wandered in naturally. <laughs> well, right, and whether the Republicans did it or the Democrats. Exactly. Since this is the last time I'm going to be on your show, Helen, um, I don't know if this is the last show. I think you may have another live one coming up. Two more shows coming up. Um, They're both uh, replays. No, the the last one actually, we are going to be doing a live show. Yeah, I thought so. On the 16th. Right. So I'm saying that since this is the last time I'm going to be on this show, um, what is it? that you would like me to talk about more than anything else? Well, something you've been talking about lately that that relates to this topic is about how we all brutalize ourselves. We're not only brutalized by our society, which you've really described in a lot of detail today, actually, uh, not using that word. Yes. But that is what it translates into, is we feel brutalized by our own society. Yes. And I'd like you to spend some time talking about how that translates into us being brutal to ourselves. Yes. I I would love to. Could we add to that, how do we get out of this mess? The way that we brutalize ourselves is, first of all, we, we accept the rules of the game. We accept, that's the number one thing that we do, is we say, it's like supposing you were a football player and you accept the fact that you are going to get smashed, crashed into, have concussions, damage your body, and uh, spend most of your life in pain, and that you're going to have to use painkillers in the meantime. You just accept that, that that is the game that you're playing. And somebody comes along and says to you, so why are you playing football? And then you look at that question and you wonder, why are we playing football? And why are 70% of the NFL players, football players, black? Well, opportunities, an opportunity to uh, make money, an opportunity to be a star, an an opportunity to feel manly, an opportunity to uh, raise your family out of poverty, an opportunity to to feel important and valued in our world. You know what, Beth, I I have to give you an example of what you're saying. I just blew my mind. I read an article the other day about a coach who specializes in preparing 9, 10, and 11-year-old boys for the NFL and that that they are already being scouted for the NFL at age age 9 and 10. And these boys are, you know, training how many ever hours a day, seven days a week, I mean, obsessed with this brutality. Oh my and God. doing it, doing it to themselves and their parents, of course, are completely thrilled. Yes, because just as you said, they see this as their way out of poverty, yeah. and as a way to make a name for themselves. And it just makes me cry. 
I, I absolutely. So whether it's that child's being prepared for the NFL or the boy who's being prepared to be an executive or the woman who's being prepared to be an executive or the woman who's being prepared to be a mother who never is a, who never gets a, a minute off you know we're we're trained to that this is the world we have to live in so what do we have to do to ourselves in order to live in that world why do women shave why do women wear high heels? Why do women wear undergarments that are painful and have been for centuries? Uh, you know, why do people do the things they do? Why do people overwork? They feel like this is the system. They can't see beyond it. And so they have to suppress the self-love, which would break them out of that because nobody is telling them that they're allowed to love themselves enough to not do that. They're told that this they get praised for doing things like that. Oh, like people who talk about their daughters like they're hot. You know, oh, your daughter is so hot. Or they, they put makeup on, you know, at such an early age. Like, why? You think makeup is good for your skin, for your eyes? Uh, you know, you think putting chemicals in your hair is good for your body? They started, they've just done a study about that, that if you dye your hair more than four times a year, you're at much greater risk of breast cancer, I think it is. Oh, my God. Yeah, so there's finally evidence. You know, one thing I have to laugh about, Beth, is you've been talking about this stuff for 35 years, you know, that I've known you, and... So many of the things that you've said are coming into science now. You know, the whole sugar yeah. conversation. Right. <laughs> you know, and people are obsessed, you know, with sugar because because it's a drug. It's a legal drug that makes you feel better for the moment. Yes. And it's it's part of how we brutalize ourselves. But anyway, you've been saying sugar is, is poison for 35 years and dyeing your hair is terrible for you for 35 years. And it's like all these predictions you didn't say them as predictions, but they, they so many of them are coming true and how many horrible accidents happen because of high heels and on and on and on. Right. Plus the damage just to your body of wearing them, even if you don't have an accident. And there's exactly. That, oh, that, that is so true. Uh, and also, I remember standing up at a conference, and I know we're coming to the end of our time, uh, and I don't want to leave us in despair, but uh, I, I, there was, I went to a conference in 1967 of the National Conference for New Politics. And uh, we were talking then about whether or not the blacks at that conference should have more than 50% of the vote. Uh, and they were a small minority. And I said no. And I said no because I knew that it was going to disenfranchise the white workers we had uh, Latins, Latinos there, like Cesar Chavez. We had the Black Panthers were there. Martin Luther King's group was there. Everybody was there. And um, I was stood up, and it was a very hostile group, and said, no, this is not right. We need to bring people together around, you know, what we need. And, 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 and I said, you know, this is self-defeating. Well, it was self-defeating then and it's self-defeating now. That was 1967. It was as clear as day to me. 50 years ago, Beth. Yes, 50 years ago. And we're still in the same place in certain ways. Now we just have more players. 
And so it isn't that I don't understand why blacks wouldn't want 50% of the vote because they're scared that their needs are going to not be met. I get it. But that isn't the answer because what do you think happened to that organization? The blacks got 50% of the vote and the whites left. So they passed it and then left the organization. Because it, because exactly, because it promotes separation. Right, but they were scared of what the, they didn't want to be dominated by the Black Panther Party or the Fannie Lou Hamer from Mississippi. So it was so ironic. You know, can't we learn? I say there is an answer, but we have to start by recognizing that we've got to stop polarizing around race, religion, gender, gender identity. I get it. I get it. I get it. You've suffered. You've suffered. You've suffered. I've suffered. We've all suffered. You know, we're all suffering, you know, but let's fight for what we all need. And I mean, I was practically drummed out of the movement because of taking positions like that. I mean, I was really literally almost drummed out of the movement. And, um, you know, we're still here and we still have to face this, that we have to be aware and we have to be smart. And that awareness is about that we are all ultimately human and we and the earth need to regenerate. And do I see hopeful signs? A few. Am I wildly optimistic? No. Because I still see polarization. There are answers, but we can't, get, we can't actually do anything until we unite. Even even in the current climate of sexual harassment and the Harvey Weinstein thing, or Weinstein, however you pronounce yes. it, you know, it's so sad because that, even that is being used polarizing men and women, you know, and polarizing the victims and the perpetrators. There's so much polarization in every single issue rather than saying these are painful situations. Everybody must be in pain. What can we do to help? I couldn't agree with you more, and it's a it's a great note to you know end on. Really, is to say when is when are our men going to support one another, and uh, to really try to understand what's going on with men and their sexuality. You know, the innerrevolution.org has a men's group that meets and talks about these things. We have free events for mobilizing to fight for the needs of people and the earth. Granny Rocks is out there talking and writing music. We have a wonderful retreat coming up in November. You can join us online anywhere. We have a couples group. We have a tremendous amount of support. We know how to change. But we need people to be willing to give up the pat answers, the polarization, the easy high. We can get so addicted to being angry at our opponent, that easy high, we have to be willing to give it up and start fighting for something and, and realizing that deep down inside, every human being is a scared child that needs love, that needs support, that needs water. I mean, we, there are so many needs that we all have in common. We need health. We need opportunities. We need meaningful work. We know what we need. We just need to get beyond what has polarized us. We have to stop letting these bullies bully our consciousness. Absolutely. I want to let 
James tell us about next week's show, and then hopefully we'll have a minute or two for you to make some final comments. Yes, uh, next week our topic will be how to change behavior, your own and others. It's not what you think. A conversation with Cassandra Vietten. Most of the work being done toward changing how people relate to the environment and social justice is well-intentioned, but ends up being ineffective or worse, counterproductive. Achieving true lasting changes in behavior, it turns out, requires changing our worldviews, so the new action becomes part of who we are. But if you've ever tried to change a worldview or pattern of behavior in yourself or another person, you know it's quite an effort. Cassandra Vietten, president of the Institute of Noetic Sciences, along with her colleagues, has been studying the science of behavior change for years. She'll join us to discuss the research and how it is being applied in working with people all around the world. If you're someone committed to bringing about sustainability and justice in your life and for the planet, if you want to be able to communicate more effectively and be a more powerful change agent, change agent in the world, you will want to hear this conversation. And by the way, on the following week, which will be our final show on November the 16th. Our topic will be People and the Economy, Turning the Relationship Upside Down, a startling conversation with Beth Green. Really? No. That's <laughs> not, actually not. The last show is going to be a live show that's going to be pre-recorded at our creativity workshop, and we're going to be talking about lost opportunities. And uh, that was what was, you're right, James, that was what we planned. But as everything in the inner revolution, we had an intuitive hit and we changed that. Um, so I thought that was fascinating that our next show is going to be about how do we change. And that's exactly where you're leaving us, Beth. Yes. Um, you know, if we, if we could stop long enough to love ourselves and to overcome how badly we've been treated that we can love ourselves because so many of us, when we grow up without the love that we need, some of us have been grown up with the flattery from our parents, but very few of us have grown up with that love and support from our families, from our communities, from our world. We have to overcome the self-hatred that our socialization has created in us so that we can say, I am worthy of more. I deserve to have clean air. I deserve not to have my mountain blown up through fracking. I deserve to have my water clean. I deserve to have a, a, you know, a social safety net. I deserve these things, despite the socialization that tells us that we should be slaves of an economic system that chews us up and spits us out, that I deserve to have meaningful relationships with others and to have enough time to regenerate and to express all the different aspects of myself. When we can overcome the self-hatred that has been bred into us by the abuse that we have all collectively felt, then we will start to fight for a world that meets the needs of people on the earth. Yay, yay, yay. Thank you so much. Bravo, Beth. What a way to go out. And I just want to say I love you. Thank you so much for being here and for the four-year experience of doing this show. And James, you've been a wonderful co-host. Thank you so much. Thank you. And we love our audience, and we hope that you'll listen to our podcast even when we go off live. There are 
hundreds, literally hundreds of very meaningful podcasts just like this one. And join us at theinnerrevolution.org. Join us at Beth Green and the Inner Revolution on Facebook and Granny Rocks On on Facebook and grannyrocksonon.com. There are so many ways to access us and we love you and we want to keep stay connected with you. Yes, we can't do it without you and you can't do it without us because we are one. Yes. 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 Thank you, Helen, for all your work on this. Yes, thank you. Thank you for joining us for this edition of Inner Revolutionary Radio. The next episode will broadcast live next Thursday at 6 p.m. Eastern Time, 3 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Be inspired. Join us.